And welcome back to another edition of the On the Board Sports Podcast. I am your host, Will Trucci, a.k.a. Will C., coming to you from Long Island, New York, on this Wednesday, December the 28th. It's a little two-part episode here today. First, I want to talk about the Jets' recent uh, woes, losing their fourth in a row, going up against the Jaguars last Thursday, and then right after that, they've gotten some help along the way, some unexpected help. But regardless or not on how you feel, the New York Jets are still very much in their own playoff hunt at this point in time. So having said all that right now, and having looked at all these situations that have happened over the weekend, the Jets, they control their own destiny. And they need a Patriot loss to happen within the next two weeks, whether it be against Miami or against Buffalo. But regardless or not right now, the Jets have to take care of their own business first and foremost against the Seattle Seahawks on New Year's Day. But let's talk about uh, the Jets. Before I would get into the Jets, I mentioned that this is a two-part episode. Part two, when this episode is over, talking about the Jets and the Islanders, uh, I talked to Joe Pantorno of AM New York, and we talked about the Islanders, we talked about the Jets. That's going to be part two of the episode. We'll mix that in uh, with this episode as well. So just want to get some thoughts off my chest. I know that uh, it's been a long time since I've uh, recorded an episode. I think the last time I recorded was actually uh, right prior to the Jacksonville Jaguar game. So let's talk about that right now. Um, Right now, when you're looking at this Jets team, they've gotten so many fortunate bounces over the course of time. And I'll be honest with you right now, you know, I did not see a situation where the Jets would be still in control of their playoff destiny with regards to uh, what happened with the Dolphins, you know, the Patriots losing on Christmas Eve to Cincinnati, and then the Raiders losing to Pittsburgh on Christmas Eve as well. But regardless or not on how you feel about the whole situation, look, this team was left for dead on Thursday. I was there at the game and went with my boy. And I got to tell you, you know, with everything going on, this team looked like it was dead in the water. And at the beginning of the game, you had Quinn and Williams going out there and getting a strip sack fumble of Trevor Lawrence. And the Jet offense had everything. Talk about the, the momentum going after that after that whole sequence of events on the defensive side of things. And they only came away with three points. And on a three and out nonetheless. So, you know, you could talk about Zach Wilson being to blame. That was the worst, and I mean the worst game that I've seen a quarterback play. I mean, we're not talking about 1999-2000 football anymore where, you know, 300 yards was the, oh my God, what a game he had. No, this this was probably like the worst game that I've ever seen a quarterback play. And I've seen my fair share of Jet quarterbacks over the years, whether it be Vinny Testaverde, Ray Lucas, uh, 
Chad Pennington, Brooks Bollinger, Quincy Carter for a couple weeks, you know, Brett Favre, Kellen Clemens, Mark Sanchez, you know, Tim Tebow never really played a full game here as a Jet, but we'll throw him in the mix too. Christian Hackenberg never did anything here, but, you know, you got Geno Smith, Ryan Fitzpatrick, and I thought Ryan Fitzpatrick in 2016 was awful. Josh McCown. I was at the Sam Darnold's uh, ghost game. That was awful. But, you know, what we saw, given the set of circumstances, that was the worst, worst football game that I have ever seen from a Jets quarterback. Throwing Luke Falk in there as well, along with Trevor Simeon. That was god-awful. So... You know, having said all that right now, this team just needed a break in the worst way. And, you know, the defense, with the, with the way how they, they played, they weren't any better. They weren't any better. Yeah, the secondary was good. But when you're talking about just extending drives, not getting tackles, not stopping Trevor Lawrence, it's got to be better. And you're looking at it from this perspective right now. This Sunday coming up, the Jets are the favorite in this game. A total 180. Total 180 after what you got to see on on uh, on Thursday night, a couple days prior to Christmas. And look, I got to tell you, man, you know, Jacksonville, Jacksonville, Seattle's no pushover either. Oh my God, I'm thinking about Jacksonville still. But Seattle's no pushover either. They're losers of their last Four out of five, losing to Kansas City. Now you're thinking that they're going to be home. And, you know, yeah, Geno Smith, he is what he is. But he's been having himself a pretty good year. And let's look at it like this, too, from this perspective. You know, Mike White's coming back this week. And say what you want about the Jets quarterbacks. You know, whether it be Flacco, White, or Darnold. Eh, not Darnold thinking of Donald here. Unbelievable. Uh, Zach Wilson. This team right now needs to get consistent play from their quarterback. And it can't be one of those things. And this is also true. It lands on the offensive line this week. It lands on the play calling of Michael Floor. And, you know, your receivers have to help you out. This is a young team. But this defense right now is in win-now mode. So having said all of this, looking at it from the perspective of, all right, what what was the deal with Zach Wilson last week, the past two weeks? This guy's been holding on to the football too long. I, I understand that the offensive line is terrible. I've said that multiple times on social media. But, you know, now that you have Mike White back in as the quarterback of this team, you get to see how how this offense played out. And it's a small sample size going up against Chicago, Minnesota, uh, Buffalo, for that matter. He actually moved the ball. Where opposed to, you know, you look at Zach. Zach did nothing except scramble around in the pocket get out of the pocket and trying to force for a big play, trying to play superhero ball. Something that Mike White alluded to uh, earlier on. 
in a couple of his press conferences when he was playing. I forgot who it was, but I think it was either Minnesota or Buffalo. One of the two. But, you know, you can't have that. You can't have that. And this week coming up, you got to complete these basic throws. you got to go out there and make the right plays. And if Mike White doesn't do that this week, Jets season's over. Oh, by the way, this defense coming in being a top five statistical unit in the league, realistically speaking, they just, they haven't done really much. They haven't done much either. Yeah, it works both both ways. Special teams too. You need all three facets to win. But the defense just can't get stepped on like this. And going up against Geno Smith, yeah, you know, the former Jet quarterback, back up all most of his time. He's gotta he's gonna probably play he's gonna try his best. And this is Seattle team too that like I said before, losers of their last four out of five. The crowd's going to be into it on Sunday. We're going to be there. I'm going to be there with a couple of friends on Sunday, on New Year's Day in Seattle. No doubt about it, but this defense has to be better. This defense has to be better on Sunday. No doubt. And if they go out there and they play the way how they did against Jacksonville... You're not winning this game. You are not winning this game. I don't care if Mike White's the quarterback. I don't care if Joe Flacco's the quarterback. Zach Wilson's the quarterback. If this defense isn't going to perform and show up and ball out, and they're favorites going into this game. They're favorites. Think about that. That's crazy to even think about. But, you know... They can't shoot themselves in the foot. This is a perfect opportunity to go out there and take matters into their own hands. And, you know, I think the last time they were up in Seattle was back, I think outside of 2020, was back in 2008. And that was Brett Favre being hurt. Last, really one of the last weeks of the season. And after the game, Sean Ellis was getting bombarded by people by fans. He wound up throwing like a giant chunk of snow into the stands, and I think he got fined for that. But we all know what happened after that, after that game. Miami, Chad Pennington goes in the giant stadium and just gets the win and gets revenge. I think that's something that, you know, it's it's almost like history repeating itself in that sense, but you don't want to see that happen again. And the chances, the law of averages only can go, can go so far in order for your playoff destiny to keep going, even if you keep losing. And I think if they lose here this week, I think they're out of it. Like, both from a, a realistic standpoint and from a fantasy standpoint as well. So, fantasy standpoint meaning making it to the playoffs with, with getting help. But they have to figure it out this week. They can't worry about what New England does they got to focus in on this game. And I think they, they'll come out. And I think that this team will uh, perform. Anything less than a win is going to be frightening for this team and what, what they've done and how how much uh, this team has rallied around this backup quarterback. So, in Mike White. So, 
you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens as the uh, as the season goes on and as the game goes on this Sunday. But, you know, you talk about just the total 180 from where this team was last Thursday and as opposed to where they are right now uh, at this point in time. It's absolutely something unbelievable. So I can't wait to be there in Seattle, and it's going to be fun. But I'm going to be nervous. Not going to lie to you on that. Um, speaking of nervous, the Islanders right now, they've been, prior to their past couple wins, they beat up on Pittsburgh last last night 5-1, uh, to one, and they found a way uh, to play like one of their complete games of the season, out shooting the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins team by a total of 42-21. to 21. And I got to tell you, you know, Matthew Barzell had himself a very good game. They looked f- very good. Josh Bailey, noted Penguin killer, just found a way uh, to score a goal, open net situation, being on the first line. A lot of people like myself uh, really questioning Bailey on that first line. But, you know, he's gotten a goal. He's picked himself up. And I'm happy for the guy. You know, putting, putting you know, the haters to rest for a little bit. But they found a way uh, to go out there and get two points against a Pittsburgh team that has been on fire as of late. They lost tonight to uh, Detroit. They were up 4 nothing, and they wound up losing 5-4 in overtime. And, uh, you know, you look at where the Islanders, they've played at, over the course of time, they beat up on a Florida team that's fighting for a playoff spot, but at this point, they're floundering. Uh, the Rangers, they're coming back to earth a little bit after being on that seven-game winning streak. And you look at the road trip that they were on as well. They get the shootout uh, loser, but they get a point against Colorado. They won't go up against a Vegas team that was battered in Vegas. Arizona, I don't know what the hell happened up in Arizona. But they they lost that game, and then they held their own against the Boston team that started off cold in that game, and they just they managed to keep up with them. But regardless or not, this coming game against the Blue Jackets right now, they cannot sleep on this Blue Jackets team. They can't. Because if you look at players to watch for over, their, over the last five games, excuse me, Jack Roslovic has been playing very well. Uh, this kid, Marchenko, got, has gotten three goals uh, in his last five games. Elvis Mears Lincolns, he's awful, but you can't sleep on him. And you got this kid, Tarasov, who in 10 games, he saved, you know, 90% of the shots going up against him, but he's given up a goals against average of a 3.4. You might see Corey Schneider in net. Uh, tonight, uh, tomorrow, but regardless or not, you look at the team stats here as well. The Islanders, after where they were on the man advantage, they have a good power play and, and keeping it in the zone. They just can't score and they can't find a way uh, to keep it. So they're in the bottom ranks right now. I think like a couple weeks ago, they were like in the top 15. Right now, they're in the, in the 26th in the league. 
that's not good. That's not going to help you at all in any way, shape, or form. But they are finding ways to get pucks in the back of the net. Uh, their penalty kill, top five still, after coming back down to earth like eighth, they found a way uh, to to basically kill more extra man advantages and opportunities for the opposition. And their faceoff percentage is, you know, it's on the bottom tier. It's 17th, but it's got to be a little bit better. And their goals for 12th, 3.25. And their goals against is 6th in the league. So Ilya Sorokin being a major factor uh, in all of that. But, you know, right now, you can't stress it enough. Columbus, you can't sleep on them. Their power play is awful, but their penalty kill is right in the middle of the league. They can win faceoffs to an extent. Uh, they can't really score. They're 2.7-0. That's 27th in the league. And their goals against is 4.0. You're not going to win games like that either. But you can't sleep on this, this team. And one more thing, by the way, before we go on. Uh, to the the interview with Joe Pantorno. I got to say this. Atu Ratu and his two games up here. I mean, I was really impressed with Simone Hol Holmstrom coming up here. But how about Ratu going out there? And uh, Yeah, it's two games. You don't want to get hyped up. But where he is on the ice, being in positions to get the puck, being physical to that extent, a lot of his teammates have been saying that he is NHL ready. He's got the brain to go out there and play. He's young. He could shoot with the best of them. And he's got a great, great shot. And he can make other people around him better. That's something that you want to see. And he could play a two-way game. So with Cal Clutterbuck being out, Kyle Palmieri being out, they move Sezikis over to the wing uh, against the Penguins. And Sezikis played his best game, no doubt about it, uh, this year. So... He's been finding a way. This Hudson Fashion guy has been absolutely killing it, too. But, you know, he's been doing his thing ever since getting called up. All right. With all that being said right now, here's the interview with Joe Pantorno. And we'll take it away right now. But today, I got a very special guest with me. Joining us from Metro New York. Hey, I'm New York is the one, the only, Joe Pantorno. Joe, how you doing, buddy? Well, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Happy holidays, and uh, excited to talk some sports here before the new year. Absolutely, Joe. Absolutely. Been a long time. We've been talking back and forth, even prior to this pandemic, uh, just trying to get you on. And I know you've been a busy guy. You've been running around <laughs> as of late. Uh, but thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. How are you making up? Doing okay. You know, listen, busy busy to me is job security. And, uh, you know, the Mets and the Islanders have, have certainly done more than enough to keep me busy, I think, uh, especially here in the last couple of weeks. So uh, I, I can't complain. Listen, there are there are, are folks out there who are struggling a lot more than me. And, uh, again, I, I still kind of have to pinch myself that, uh, that this is my job sometimes. But um, I'm very lucky, and this certainly is the time of year to uh, kind of practice that gratitude. Uh, so I'm I'm giving it a shot here, and uh, so far so good. I think nothing nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. Um, we got to begin with how you got into 
broadcast media and how you got into working in the field of news. So how did that all begin and where did the love for that begin for you? Yes. Yeah, so I was probably about 14 or 15 when I came to the, the horrible realization that I wasn't going to play first base for the New York Mets, um, which, you know, is a, is, is a tough pill to swallow, I think, for a lot of kids when they come to that realization. But I knew I wanted to do something with sports. And, um, you know, in high school, I, I never really knew what I wanted until I joined my school newspaper. And I had a, a wonderful nurturing teacher um, who helped kind of pave the way for me and, and kind of fuel my passion, I guess, and, um, you know, channel my love of sports into something that was uh, still productive and uh, still pretty important in terms of keeping people informed. So um, it was, it was almost love at first sight, I guess, if you want to call it that much. And, um, you know, by the time I was 16 or 17, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to write for a newspaper. Um, I was blessed with looks for newspaper and not television. So um, I wanted to, you know, keep it along those lines. But um, I attended Hofstra University, majored in journalism, and proceeded to work my tail off for a few years. Um, and it's it's been about 10 years now in the business, and it's been a, a very fruitful and, and rewarding experience. And, um, you know, I've met some wonderful people along the way, and, and I've, I've met some fantastic supporters. And uh, I, I wouldn't be here with, with a lot of you guys, um, you know, reading my stuff and, and supporting my work. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a bit of a trip. And it's not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. But uh, when, when you get there, it's, it's certainly worth it. Guys, stick to the grind, man. Guys, stick to the grind always. Where, before you went to Hasha, where did you go for high school? So I attended Farmingdale High School on Long Island. Um, I was a Daler. I still don't know what a Daler is um, for anybody asking. And um, I will always give her a shout out from now until forever. Her name is Mrs. Kelly. Um, she was the teacher who, who helped sort of light the spark um, to, to get me into this business. So I certainly would not be here without her. That's awesome stuff right there. Always got to pay homage to the past no matter what. From the past to now, and right now, the hot topic right now is playoff football here in New York. It's a possibility for the New York Jets. We'll start off with them because they had basically, you talk about a turn of events from what happened last Thursday to now. They lost against the Jaguars. They're going up against one of the worst defenses, and Zach Wilson laid a dud. Whatever has happened with him. Over the course of time, he has just absolutely, he hasn't produced. Put it to you that way. And for the people out there listening, we all know about what's going on with Zach, but it's just a team right now at this point. And then they get the breaks like they did back in 2009, this franchise did, when the Raiders lost. You got the New England Patriots losing on Christmas Eve, and then you got the Dolphins losing on Christmas Day, and we know what happened with Tua after the fact with his concussion. But let's talk about the Jets going up to Seattle right now. Uh, what do they have to do in order to beat Seattle this week? Yeah, what an incredible turn of events that the Jets are looking at this situation right now when really last week we thought they were basically dead and buried. So right. um, you know, a little bit of luck certainly goes a long way. When you are looking at the matchup with Seattle – 
I think there is a bit of, um, I guess the word I'm looking for is, is almost relaxation or relief, I guess, in a way. That's the better word to use, relief, that Mike White is, you know, entrenched as the starter. They know he's the guy moving forward. The Jets have shown that they play significantly better for him, and it certainly seems like he has the support of the Jets locker room, which obviously you couldn't say about Zach Wilson. Um, so I think it's imperative that the Jets do whatever they can to protect Mike White. Uh, he's certainly shown an affinity for, you know, quote unquote, slinging it in a way. Um, he's he's a bit more aggressive in the passing game. He's shown that he can work with the targets that the Jets have. And while they're not fully formed or fully developed, and there are still some moves to make in the future, at least there is an indication that there is something to work with, which is incredibly promising for a team that had been devoid of such playmaking talent for, for years, really. Um, so when you're looking at a Seahawks pass rush that really struggled against the Chiefs, um, and they are one of the worst pass rushing units in the league, um, this should be an opportunity for Mike White and the Jets to put together a, a, a nice game. And at least for White himself, his eyes should be getting a little bigger here, um, knowing that he should have enough time in the pocket to at least dissect the Seahawks to the best of his ability. I'm not necessarily suggesting that he is the long-term guy for the Jets. I'm not really saying that at all. Um, but, you know, the Jets have to work with what they have right now. And uh, Mike White certainly is the best option. So, um as long as they can keep White on his feet and give him some time, I feel fairly confident that they'll at least be in this much more than they were last week against Jacksonville. You know, from a Seahawks perspective, they've lost four out of their past five games. They lost to Kansas City last week. And Geno Smith, throughout the year, he has been probably the comeback player of the year, one of the, one of the nominees for comeback player of the year anyway being one of the top-rated passers, and with Pete Carroll being over there, he knows how to basically play these young kids coming up, right, being the great coach from USC. And even though he was the Jet co uh, coach back in the day, uh, he's finding ways to go out there and, and making things work. But also, too, when you look at the Seattle Seahawks team, they're fighting for a playoff spot. And you mentioned the fact that they don't really have that much of a pass rush here. Uh, it. For somebody that hasn't watched the Seahawks, uh, what what would you say would be their calling card in that sense? And also, too, the Jets are the favorite this week from a lot of from a lot of Vegas and a lot of uh, bookies as well. So, what what you take away on the Seahawks? Yeah, so I mean, the Seahawks are they're they're sort of a sum of their parts in a way. Um, you know, the emphasis is on is on team. They're, they're a hard-nosed, they're a physical team. And I, I would say when it comes to, you know, Geno Smith, it's him finally being in a system where, number one, he is afforded the opportunity to sort of develop and flourish, where he's playing with a, a patient coaching staff, understanding that expectations were incredibly low in the first place. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that does go a long way with a quarterback who had tried to establish himself in New York twice or, or New Jersey twice, however you'd like to call it. Um, right. So I, I think it's, it's a great narrative for Gino to at least show that he is capable of succeeding in the NFL. Like you said, um, 
he should be one of the favorites for the comeback player of the year. And what he has done um, is, is an incredible accomplishment to take a team that I think a lot of people wrote off at the beginning of the season after losing Russell Wilson um, and, and keeping them in it for this long. Um, and of course you also have the notion of what, you know, this could be a revenge game for Geno Smith, uh, you know, right. playing against a team that gave up on him. If you want to go that far and be that crude in saying that. So um, he is going to have a lot to prove. And, and of course there is certainly no shortage of motivation for a team that again is like you said, not favored um, and have been proving people wrong for, large spells of this season oh yeah and you look at Gino right now and he's probably looking at his shots like you said show he might have to he, he might eliminate the Jets just just with his play alone I know this this Jet defense is a top five uh defense in the league but you know they has the past couple of weeks anyway they haven't really lived up to expectation. And, of course, it works both ways. But with the way how the quarterbacks played, that's definitely overshadowing what the defense has done. But regardless, nonetheless, the Jets, they are in a good spot. They win their last two games, and they get a little bit of help with a Patriot loss. They control their own destiny. Speaking of teams that control their own destiny, the New York Giants last week, dropped. they lost a heartbreaking game, 61-yard game-winning field goal in the last second up in Minnesota. And now they go up against the Indianapolis Colts, the woeful Indianapolis Colts, after they lost on the day after Christmas uh, to the L.A. Chargers. The L.A. Chargers wound up clinching a playoff spot because of this. Now, you look at the Giants right here. You know, they really, really need this game in order to make the postseason win, and they're in just about. Um, and they're playing at home. You got a lot of Giants fans that are like, oh, you know, I, I didn't think I was going to go to the game, but I, I am now because of the, the, the factor. Uh, talk to us about the Giants and what, they, what they've done this season. And not only that, just what, what might, might go right for them uh, coming this week against the Colts. Yeah, so again, I mean, this is this concept of, of controlling their own destiny. I mean, this, is, this was a team that took advantage of a softer schedule at the beginning of the year um, and through good coaching. I mean, they, they won games that they were supposed to win. Um, and that really sort of laid the foundation for where they are right now. Um, again, it, it can't be stated enough what a good job Brian Dable has done with this team, but also it goes to show in, in what was a show me year for both Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley, just how invaluable they are to this organization. I think Daniel Jones has done, more than enough to show that he is capable of being the franchise quarterback. Despite the numbers not necessarily being as gaudy as they need to be, he's still succeeding in an offense that is devoid of any sort of legitimate outside talent. He's getting it done with the likes of Isaiah Hodgins and Darius Slayton. Um, and he's showing that he is one of the better dual threat quarterbacks in the league where he's working well under the same sort of system that Brian Dable had with Josh Allen. And I'm not trying to correlate the two. I'm not going to say that Daniel Jones is going to become Josh Allen. Um, but even if he is Josh Allen light in a way, that's a huge win for the Giants who really, I think, if you spoke to a lot of people within the building last year or even going into the season, there were some supreme doubts 
about whether or not Jones would be the guy. And it would be the same thing if you asked the fans as well. Um, so that was a, a huge enough win for the organization in itself right there. But obviously the return of Saquon Barkley to what he was, um, to that electrifying playmaking running back who provides a legitimate security blanket and support system. So all of the pressure isn't necessarily on Daniel Jones and a passing game that is filled with holes. So um, that really is the centerpiece. And again, Wink Bartendale has done a wonderful job with this defense. It's not filled with household names, um, but it's an aggressive unit that really has been sort of lacking that gumption in years past with the Giants when they've struggled for so long. When you look at the organization, understanding that it's the backbone of all of their successful teams is a very good top five, top 10 at the very least defense. Right. And you look at this electric, electrifying rookie in Kayvon Thibodeau, just going out there and absolutely being a star. I mean, the, much of the love goes to Sauce Gardner in New York, being the, one of the top defensive rookies. But this kid has come through, and he's on the same defensive line with Leonard Williams and all these other guys with the Giants. They've, they've just absolutely been playing their, their mind out. And to, to think that all four NFC East teams might actually make it to the postseason, that's pretty incredible right there, uh, to say the very least, including the commanders and what they've done as well. But the Giants so far, from the offensive standpoint, yeah, you mentioned the holes in the passing game, not having Kenny Galladay over there either. Uh, they've been trying to find their way. They're ranked 27th in the league in passing total yards, and then they're sixth in the league in the rushing from a rushing standpoint. So they're going out there, and they're running the ball consistently. And with Danny Jones uh, also being a dual-threat quarterback as well, you mentioned it earlier, he's definitely – uh, that guy. Moving on from the gridiron to the rink, the hockey rink in the NHL. Talk about the Islanders, the team that we that we that you covered, that I love. I love watching. Um, they have been a roller coaster uh, of emotions watching this team play, and they are better offensively this year. Defensively, they they they're a little bit. Behind, I, I'm not going to say I'm not going to say that they are one of the top units in the league after the way how they started off on the penalty kill uh, with their special teams, but it has come down to earth a lot. I mean, you got Alexander Romanov and Sebastian Ajo trying to get their their feet wet in Lane Lambert's system and defensive style of play. A lot of fans have been saying that there's really no structure on the defensive side of things. Uh, just give us your takeaways so far on the Islanders' uh, year thus far. Yeah, so it's you sort of have to give a little bit to get a little bit. So for a team that had been so desperate for offensive production, or at least consistent offensive production, there was a loosening of that defensive philosophy that was so popular under Barry Trotz. And it was a massive undertaking, obviously, for a first-year coach like Lane, Lane, Lane Lambert to come in and do so and and it was obviously an enormous plus that he has been familiar with the team being an assistant for the previous four seasons um but that being said i mean you had some notable changes within the defense where you were coming back with you know three different guys uh you know starting at least and um 
you know, hoping that Noah Dobson can take the next step in his career. And um, it, it was pretty much expected that the defense wasn't going to be as resolute as they had been. And that is obviously going to put a little bit more pressure on your goaltending tandem in Ilya Sorokin and Semyon Varlamov, but that's why you have them. Um, you know, you can, it's that, that defensive style is, it's not only to, you know, cover up a, a meager offense per se, but that style of hockey also sort of helps cover up goalies that might not be, you know, considered top tier in a way. Um, so it certainly gave Lane Lambert and the Islanders a little bit more freedom to push the, def- you know, the defenseman up a little bit more and have them a little bit more influential in the play. Um, so in that aspect, you're kind of seeing that, you know, Noah Dobson is going to probably flirt with 50 points again this season. And Scott Mayfield and Ryan Pulak are probably going to flirt with career highs and in goals. Um, so, I mean, there are some positive things to take out of it. Um, but like you said, at the same time, I mean, the Islanders have been without Adam Pellick for a while and it's still looking like it's still going to be some time before he comes back. So you're all of a sudden sort of piecing together a blue line right now that's featuring Parker Wolderspoon and Sebastian Ajo and Robin Sallow is sort of cycling his way back in. So there isn't much continuity. And that being said, there isn't a lot of consistency anywhere in the team where you'll see these spurts where, okay, their last two games, they've scored nine goals, but then they'll go two or three games and score a combined two. Um, so I think that's really the big thing that the Islanders are still searching for, obviously, is that magical, mythical consistency that everybody talks about, but they don't really know how to attain and hold on to. Um, and that's what makes the best teams the best teams, obviously, is that they're able to be consistent more than teams per se. So um, I think, you know, in my opinion, this is right around where I thought the Islanders would be. Um, they are in the conversation for, you know, a playoff spot and they're in an uber competitive division, one of the best in hockey, if not the best. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there are a certain amount of kudos that is owed to Lane Lambert and his staff for getting the Islanders here as we're sort of flirting with the midway point of the season. Um, that being said, there is still quite a ways to go for this team and there are still, um, an abundance of needs, um, whether that be a legitimate scoring winger, potentially another defenseman to really bolster this team for the stretch run. What are your takeaways from Oliver Wallstrom this year? This kid has been playing well. I understand that, and I saw it with my own eyes. He wasn't on the bench. He didn't play the rest of the game last night after taking a big hit. And after uh, putting a big hit on one of the Pittsburgh Penguins uh, players last night, but what are your takeaways on Oliver Walsh from this year? Yeah, so I, I think it's important to understand the, the sort of evolution that his game has had to undergo just to stick with the Islanders. Um, this was a playmaking, offensively skilled player that sort of had to retool his game to fit the Islanders' system. It's always that two-way hockey, that 200-foot game. Um, that's not easy to teach younger players, and we saw that to right. an extent for Bellows. That's why he didn't stick here on Long Island. Um, 
So I think Wallstrom's 200-foot game has come along immensely. Um, there is a certain physical factor to his game that I think was unexpected but has been a bit of a spark plug for this team. Um, and obviously the foundation of his offensive skill set, that is there. We, we know that he has a lethal wrist shot. Um, you know, he's a, I'd say, above to above average puck handler um so it's it's there it's you know again i think there are a lot of people out there who would like to see what he can do in a system that you know fully facilitates that skill set and it was a free-flowing really offensive brand of hockey um but in that mindset it's uh you know this is one of the more sizable offensive threats that the islanders do have and it's just a question of trying to piece together the right fit, I guess, for him. Um, but obviously it remains to be seen when we will see him again. Um, like you said, you know, he left last night's game. He did not skate with the team this morning. Lane Lambert didn't provide us an update at all. So I guess for at least the time being, we can, we can sort of prescribe him as, as being day to day. Um, but obviously you and I both know, the tricky and secretive nature of hockey injuries and uh, the updates that come with it. So right. um, a holding pattern in a wait and see mode. Right. We'll definitely see. Hey, speaking of uh, seeing is believing. How about uh, Aturatu his past couple of games, his first two games here up in, up in the big leagues, he scored a goal in his first game playing. And last night, yeah, he didn't really get on the stat sheet per se, but he's noticeable and he's doing things that a lot of players on his, you know, a lot of his teammates, excuse me, are complimenting him on. And for him being at 20 years old, just playing the way how he is, even though it's two games, it's really incredible to see that. Uh, just talk to us about the, the development and the rise of this kid, because it's absolute. I, I got to see this kid play in Bridgeport and I think he's the real deal. But I want to hear from a guy like yourself, Joe, you know, what, what it Atsu means to this team. And before, before we go on, I got to say, you know, when this team was in its slump, they were just going through the, the, the notions, you know, just playing hockey and, you know, they couldn't really get themselves off the mat. You know, now that this kid's here, even though it's true games, they played, you know, their, their most complete games of the year and, and these two wins. And I think it's correlating correlation with him being here. Uh, what, what's your takeaway on Atsuratsu? And Hudson yeah. Fashion as well. This, this guy's been playing unbelievable. What, what's your takeaway on both? Yeah, it's, it's funny that the Islanders have kind of put two of their more complete games, you know, this season together over the last two, um, especially considering they had short benches for large majorities of both of those evenings. Um, right. And I, I had spoken with Ryan Pulak a couple of weeks ago, kind of asking what the overarching problem, I guess, is with kind of finding that certain amount of intensity. And they, they almost, you know, he, he sort of said that when the Islanders feel like they have their backs against the wall, it's when they kind of go into this desperation mode. Um, that's when you see some of this best hockey. So, I think you saw it against the Panthers when Holmstrom went down and they were nursing a, a 2-1 lead going into the third period. They turned it on in the third period. Um, and that was also after losing Brock Nelson. 
Um, same thing last night or Tuesday night against the Penguins. Um, you know, you lose a pretty invaluable contributor in Oliver Wallstrom um, on another questionable hit. And it was same thing. They, they turned it on. Um, so I, I think it's that desperation factor that's sort of helping. But as for Ratu, I think it can't be overstated how impressive it is that a 20-year-old is here in the NHL playing with the Islanders when this is his first season in North America. Um, that's an accomplishment in itself. On top of that, he gets his call up um, and he has to scramble to, you know, from Bridgeport to Long Island. And then he's placed on the fourth line where he said it himself. Uh, you know, they put me on the fourth line and I don't think they expected me to score or add much to the offense, right? Uh, which sort of lends the suggestion that they kind of called him up to sort of just hold a spot on the line, be a warm body. Um, and, you know, sort of, I don't want to say play a more defensive style of game, but just kind of keep things stable. Um, right. yeah. But then you see what he does in a flash when he does have the puck. Um, and that goal against the Panthers certainly sort of made all of us kind of sit up in our seats and take notice that, okay, this is what he is capable of. And, um, I think that's going to be fueling a lot of Islanders fans' dreams over the next few weeks and months. Um, I'm not necessarily sure if he's going to be a long-term fit or have a long-term stay. Um, but that being said, he is certainly showing the organization that he is capable of staying up. Um, and even more so, Hudson Fashing is doing the same thing. Um, a very versatile forward. We saw him double shifting last night. He was playing with Matthew Barzal and Josh Bailey. He was playing with Ratu and Matt Martin. So this is a versatile forward who's doing what he's asked of. Um, again, I actually spoke to him this morning. He kind of preached getting out of his comfort zone and sort of not forgetting what he knew as a hockey player, but just being open to sort of tweaking and, and adjusting his game. And it's paid off in spades so far. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, with this trip coming up, I mean, can't overshadow Columbus tomorrow on Thursday and you know with the way how these Western Canadian teams have been playing you look at the Kraken they've been one of the more fun teams to watch just going out there nightly with Maddie Beniers and having former Islander Jordan Everly just doing doing his thing with Shane Wright up there as well uh you look at you know Vancouver Vancouver's been slumping but you can't sleep on them and then you look at the the back-to-back coming up against Edmonton and Calgary uh just takeaways man on on what this future on this road trip means for the Isles right now yeah I mean this is this is a sizable road trip I mean they're sitting in I, I think it's like sixth in the division but it's it's bunched up um and basically the standings can change here every week um mm -hmm. for the most part so it's imperative to at least flirt and stay with 500 on this road trip um and it, it's obviously no easy feat um, you know, this is the second time this season that they're going out west already, um, which is another conversation for another day when it comes to the NHL schedule making. Um, but it's imperative that they just kind of stay within touching distance of this pack in the Metropolitan Division, whether it's, you know, the Rangers or the Devils or the Capitals who are red hot or the Penguins and, um, you know, I'm 
yeah, of course. And then the Canes are sort of establishing their their spot at the very top of this heap um, mm-hmm. to the point where I don't really think that they can be caught by anybody um, this season. I'm, I'm a firm believer that this will be the team that does win the Metropolitan Division. Um, but really, I think it's, it's imperative that the Islanders just stay in the hunt for that third place spot. Um, and it's it's very much there. I, I think we saw what they could do against the Oilers earlier this season. Um, I think, um, you know, uh, the Kraken, that, that's a winnable game. I think the Flames are going to provide quite a challenge. But, you know, you get out of this road trip with, uh, you know, three wins in your back pocket. That's That's massive. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see what happens come the new year for sure. Uh, I'll I'll be watching the team on the road, so it's going to be crazy going going to these road games. Seattle's a beautiful place. Was up in Edmonton and Calgary over the summer. Can't wait for Vancouver too. Uh, first time going to be up there, but it should be a fun time regardless. Nonetheless, speaking of uh, New York team, you mentioned the Rangers. Uh, they were they started off cold, and you know they kind of got into a little rut. Jacob Truba throwing his helmet during one of the games. Uh, basically riling up his team. And after that, man, they got hot. And they had to change up the lines a little bit with them putting Lafreniere and having Kako on the top line uh, and having Heald, too, to, to that extent. But they're, they're still a dangerous unit. Igor Shostakhin, one of the better goalies in the league, if not one of the best. Uh, talk to us about the Rangers so far this season. Yeah, it's it's been a bit of a puzzling season. And I, I think again, going into the year, there were higher expectations put on their shoulders. Um, But in the same breath, they weren't going to surprise anybody this year. I think last year, they were more of an afterthought in that loaded metropolitan division. Um, And they, and they snuck up on a lot of people. And again, when you have a goalie playing at a a Vezina caliber for as long as Igor Shosturkin did, um, it's not out of the realm of possibility to see the Rangers go as far as they have. Um, in that same breath, I mean, there has been a notable regression with this team. Um, you know, Shesterkin is not playing at that level, and it's unfair to expect him to do so. Um, I think the surrounding support from the blue line has been subpar. Um, I think, you know, the the inconsistencies within the forward group and the development of some of their younger talent has been suspect. Um, you know, I, I know today that, uh, Lafreniere was practicing on, you know, again, with the bottom six. Um, so it's, it doesn't seem to be much continuity in the Rangers game. Um, again, we saw it last night against the Capitals. They got thumped pretty, pretty handily. Um, and then you begin asking questions about just how fit of a coach Gerard Gallant can be with the Rangers. And, um, it's sort of been this theme everywhere he's gone where, you know, he kind of shows up. He's a bit of a flash in the pan. Um, experiences wild successes within his first year. And his tenure with that team is still a short one. Um, and he's kind of shown the door within the next two or three seasons per se. But um, the Rangers are a bit of an enigma because you know the talent that they have is is right. quite impressive. Um I, I, you know, you have a guy in Chris Kreider who is coming off a 50 goal season and, and Mika Zibanejad is one of the better playmakers in the Eastern conference. And you don't need me to tell you how good Artemi Panarin is either. And um, they, they have the, the bones to 
possess one of the best power plays in the league. I mean, we we see it um, almost every night. Just they move the puck in a way where you are hard pressed to find a better unit in the league. It's just a matter of maybe trying to be a little too perfect. And I don't know if that's a philosophy thing. I don't know if that's a coaching thing. Um, I don't know if that's something rooted in, you know, the hearts of these players. I don't, I don't know, but I think the Rangers will go a little bit further and find a little bit more of that consistency, which I guess is the theme of today. Um, if they were able to just simplify their game a little bit, um, I, I think that would, that would go quite a long ways because again, this is a team that should very well be in the mix for a playoff spot. And you know, you, that, that seven game winning streak saved Gerard Gallant's job. Um, there's no other way to sort of put it. So another swoon, like we saw last month um, from the Rangers and, and this team might be in trouble. Right. Might be back in the lottery again, who knows, but with the way how they've been playing recently and, you know, you can't ever count them out. And then with the trade, Let's say if they do win, you know, you got the trading deadline coming up. You know, Patrick Kane may be available. I mean, we've been hearing rumors about him going over to the Blue Shirts for the longest time. And with the way how the Maple Leafs have been playing, too, you know, you can't discount them either. But regardless or not, this is going to shape out to be one great rest of the way for this NHL season. Before we leave hockey, let's talk about the other tri-state teams. Don't count Buffalo. The Buffalo is in its own little world right now. Hopefully they're doing all right uh, with all their blizzards. But here, crossing state lines, the Devils, they started off hot. And you got to see what Jack Hughes can do. You got to see what Nico Heischer can do. Jesper Bratson playing on another level, looking for another contract. Uh, what's your takeaway on the Devils season thus far? After they started off hot, they cooled off significantly. Uh, what's your takeaway on them? Yeah, they, they did. Um, and it's sort of the law of averages, I guess, if you want to call it that. This is still the second place team in, in the Metropolitan Division. And really, it was it was quite a showing at the beginning of the season what they did and how they were able to do it. This is a team I think that a lot of us thought is, is clearly ahead of schedule. Um, I think Plenty of us believed that the Devils were going to be a threat in the Eastern Conference. I just didn't think that it was going to be this soon. Right. And obviously, we still have another half season plus to sort of potentially tamper those expectations. So, um, you know, while the Devils could very well be in the thick of the playoff hunt down the stretch, um, you know, at least they should be right now given their standing. Um you know, I, I think they're playing with house money at this point where, again, at the beginning of the season, you could have reasonably said that this was maybe the sixth or seventh ranked team in the division. Um, so the pieces are there. Um, and the fact that they're showing this now and hitting their stride now um really is, is such a good sign for this organization and really for the this quote-unquote tri-state hockey rivalry where um, I, I think hockey could really hit, uh, hit a fever pitch in the New York, New Jersey, New York City metropolitan area, whatever you want to call it, if all three teams were 
good because legitimately when, when is the last time that has happened i don't know if it really ever has no where all three teams are good at the same time i mean maybe maybe you got you know maybe 93 94 yeah. uh, at that at that point in time you know but like outside of that haven't really hasn't really recently happened like this yeah. you know exactly. so i mean we'll we'll see what happens come come the rest of the season it's going to be a fun one regardless down down the stretch we love hockey but to move on from a hockey standpoint to baseball and we'll we'll end, we'll end it off like this new york baseball team's going crazy right now yankees they resign aaron judge nine-year deal 360 million dollars uh i didn't think he was going to resign but he did and it took a captaincy and a lot of money uh for him to come back to new york and a lot of unfinished business uh to take care of and then the day that judge was essentially going to be you know he was getting his captaincy and the reciting the mets they come out of nowhere and they swoop in for carlos correa and right now while the deal isn't signed yet because of his physicals it, it's been one crazy season off season for the mets resigning edwin diaz uh getting Max Scherzer, re-signing Brandon Nimmo, and getting Justin Verlander, and to add Carlos Correa on top of this is just absolutely crazy. New York baseball, you talk about the fever pitch with hockey. I mean, I we talk about the 2000 World Series, we talk about 2015, when both teams made to the playoffs and lost, uh, respectively. And the hype's been there, you know, for the past couple of years, but this right now, with the way how Steve Cohen's going at it with his spending and with the way how the Mets have played the past year, along with the Yankees. Uh, just talk to us about the New York baseball team, man. Talk to us about the Mets in general. You're a Mets fan. <laughs> you know, talk to us about that. Yeah, New York is uh, New York is a better place when both teams are good. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's for certain. And, yeah, I've been, I've been covering the Mets for uh, – I'm going into my fourth season now covering the Mets. Um, so really the, the transformation that we've seen from the team just because of an ownership change is, is remarkable. And it's been discussed ad nauseum, um, just what Steve Cohen has done and meant for this franchise. Um, right. And the fact that he sort of went on this unprecedented spending spree, you know, spending $801.6 million over a six-week span between November and December. Uh, we've never seen it before. Uh, you know, if the Carlos Correa deal does go through, it's a uh, a three hundred and eighty million dollar payroll. Again, we've never seen it before. But this is the price of winning right now for Steve Cohen because there is the understanding that the Mets organizational depth is not good. Um, and in the meantime, while the franchise does build its farm system up to sort of create that substantial and consistent pipeline that we see from the likes of the Dodgers and for a much, you know, a lesser extent, the Braves in a way um, it's going to be the formula. It's not going to be the norm. Um, you know, I don't think in five years, we'll still be talking about it this way, um, but he's doing what he can right now to feel the winner right now. And I think that's all that Mets fans can really hope for. Um, so it's, 
again, like I said, it's it's the price of, of being competitive, especially when you're in the NL East, and it's going to be a three-horse race between them and the Phillies and the Braves. Um, but there's obviously questions still looming about the legitimacy of Carlos Correa actually being here, um, and I think that's a conversation to have when the name is on the dotted line in terms of dealing with hypotheticals, if he's here or if he's not, what that means for the team. Um, but if that does go through, you know, the Mets left side of the infield is set for the next eight to 10 years, at least. Um, right. so that's something that's huge for a team that really has been searching for, you know, with a third baseman of the future since David Wright's injury issue started cropping up in his ultimate retirement. So, um, the, this is a, this is a good team. This is a, a very good team on paper. Um, which only gets you so much, obviously. But um, again, I think you will bring the Mets to that next level of conversation in terms of World Series favorites if they're able to get potentially another bat to at least throw into the mix of the designated hitter conversation. Um, because again, hypothetically saying that Correa does come here and that deal does get done, you're potentially flexing Eduardo Escobar to the DH spot to work with Daniel Vogel back. Is that enough? That obviously remains to be seen. Um, but I think there are people who would feel a lot better about where the offense is, I guess, in a way, and where the team is at if they are able to get at least a bona fide designated hitter. Right. Let me ask you this now regarding Steve Cohen, because this has been talked about, at least I outside of the Yankees, and with the way how the Phillies have spent over the past couple of years, every Mets fan is clamoring over the spending ways of this owner right now. And to me, listen, America, I understand that. You go out there, you want to do whatever is best for your team, you go out there, you do it. But other teams, they go out there and, you know, they, they have their ways about doing their their style, you know. Would you, do, not would you, but do you see a salary cap coming with Major League Baseball within the next couple of years? That's, that's a great question. Um, and I'm not really sure if I'm necessarily a proponent for one. Um, I also think that, com you know, that conversation might change if it's, if if this becomes the norm and Steve Cohen is consistently spending like this and you have a team with, you know, flirting with a $400 million payroll every year, um, I think at least the concept of a salary cap is introduced. That being said, I think baseball has more of a problem with billionaire owners and an unwillingness to spend. Right. Um. It shouldn't be a place where the Mets are potentially spending $315 million on Carlos Correa. And it's more money than the Pittsburgh's, Pittsburgh Pirates have spent on free agents since 2010. Mm -hmm. In no dimension should that be acceptable. And I know, obviously, the headlines are Steve Cohen and his spending. Um, but a huge proponent of this conversation is the owners and their unwillingness to spend um, this so-called agreement that they had amongst each other to potentially not 
dole out these huge contracts that are going excess of $300 million. Um, and if I may be so bold, but to introduce the word of collusion amongst them, um, it's that's a legitimate problem that Major League Baseball does have on its hands. Um, you know, 25 of the 30 owners in MLB are, are billionaires. And I'm not saying that that gives them the right to go out and spend in a way that Steve Cohen does. I'm not saying that teams have to spend, you know, 300 to $800 million in offseason to field a winner. Again, right. that's not fair. Um, but that being said, you can't have teams who are entering the season with a payroll of $75 million, of $90 million. With the revenues that Major League Baseball makes, that's unacceptable. Um, so there's no reason for teams in 2023 to have payrolls like they're in 1993. Um, so I think ultimately that is the larger issue. That being said, if there does need to be a salary cap to potentially put a harness on you know, the spending that gives a certain advantage to more wealthy owners, well, that is a conversation to have down the road. Um, right. But for the time, I think in order to really close this gap or this competitive gap, if you want to call it that, uh, if the Mets really kind of enter a so-called golden age of consistent success, um, it certainly will be brought up, um, this, this notion of the salary cap. And with it, hopefully, is a um, talk about a salary floor as well. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's almost like history repeating itself. I mean, remember, I mean, I, I'm 32. I remember when the Yankees were going out. There. I'm a Yankee fan, by the way. And I remember when they were spending crazy amounts of money on free agents like Jared Wright, Jason Giambi, Hideki Matsui. And, you know, they would be a consistent playoff team. Gary Sheffield, another one going out there for Kevin Brown, trading for Randy Johnson. I could go on. I could go on about the Yankees spending ways back in the mid-2000s. But because of that, yeah, they were competitive in the regular season, but it never really guaranteed them a World Series. And from that perspective, you look at some of these teams, that's why you go out there and you play 162 games, because you never know what could happen during, you know, during a season, whether or not an injury can happen. Whether or not, look at, look at, I'm just going to throw out teams right now. You look at the O2 Angels, how they got hot at the right time being a wild card team. You look at the, the Marlins the following year, wild card team, the Red Sox in 2004, the White Sox winning the Central in 2005, you know, the Cardinals being one of the worst teams uh, in that playoff format in 2006. I know you're a Mets fan growing up. You don't want to hear about that Yachty Molina, Adam Wainwright situation, Beltran looking at that and then, you know, you're saying to yourself, oh, you know, what, what's going on over here? But realistically speaking, that's why you play to win the games. And that's why, you know, some people out there that talk about, oh, you know, more teams should be spending money, all this stuff like that. In, in, in a way, you, you look at a team like this year, like the Mariners, where they came up out of really nowhere after having a hot end of the year in 2021. 2022, they came out and they found their way in the, in the thick of the wild card, and they came back against the Blue Jays. They gave it their all against the Mariners. And you look at the, speaking of the A's, the 0-2 A's, too, uh, being the Moneyball team, and everybody loving Moneyball uh, in that sense. So, you know, I 
again, I can go on and on and on and on about this, but that's why you play the games. If Steve Cohen wants to go out there and spend this money, let him. Let him spend his money if it's going to be in a competitive product. But you can't predict injuries, and you certainly can't predict the way how a season's going to go. And that's why the paper champions, one more team I'll throw out there, 2015 uh, San Diego Padres with how they spent money uh, in their offseason, getting guys, getting Justin Upton and all of those guys and wound up being in the last place finish. But, you know, you never see the teams that go out there and spend the money like this really ever win a World Series. So it's really all about, you know, what goes on uh, behind the scenes of the game. And let Stevie Cohen get get the attention for the Mets. He's a Mets fan first. I understand that totally. But again, you know, you got to go out there and play these games. And we'll see what happens. Do they have the best team on paper? A lot of people are giving them, including myself, a chance at that. But, you know, realistically speaking right now, you play 162 games for a reason, and you got the extra playoff teams now coming in. So baseball's got to generate that revenue they lost during COVID. So you look at a, a team like the Phillies getting hot at the right time, making it in that final wild card spot now, where opposed to a 10, 20 years ago, they would have missed the playoffs. But that's regardless of not uh, what, what happens there. One more question for you, and then we'll leave it off. I mentioned the Yankees earlier. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Yankees offseason thus far? Obviously, it's not as high profile as the team across town. Um, that being said, it's been a very good one, um, which is, I, I think a lot of people are going to raise their eyebrows because there are still some question marks, uh, specifically the left side of the infield, what's going mm-hmm. on with I- with Josh Donaldson, if that's a you know a legitimate option to make a push towards pennant, um, but I think you have to chalk up the offseason as a win immediately by retaining Aaron Judge. That goes without saying. Without him, the Yankees aren't even a playoff team, let alone playing in the ALCS. Um, so that was at least um, the first win for a team that still needed to show that it's capable of hanging on to its franchise star where this isn't a com- this isn't a conversation we would have had 10 15 20 30 years ago about a player you know coming off a career season a record setter- setting season with the Yankees and then potentially leaving that never right. happened um, and this was the closest i think we've ever seen for it to actually happen um so it was a good reminder i think by the Yankees to the rest of the league that hey you know they're still here um it's it's an important reminder um and that being said the the signing of carlos rodon gives the yankees at least in my opinion um a top three starting rotation in in baseball um the the depth that it provides the allocation of lefties and righties where again you know if if you want to do it like that and i know not everybody's privy to it but you have a starting rotation of Cole and Rodone and Severino and Nestor Cortez and uh, Frankie Montas bringing up the rear, um, you'd be hard-pressed to find rotations that are that deep in baseball. Um, And I think, you know, over the last five, ten years, the Achilles heel of this team has been consistent starting pitching. Um, So that's a huge get 
um, for a team that needed to address that. Um, again, I, I think this team takes another massive step in at least trying to challenge the Astros as the best team in the American League if they do find a way to come away with Brian Reynolds. Um, but, uh, you know, the foundation is obviously there. And again, I mean, if given the moves that these teams have made across the American League, I mean, I know that the Texas Rangers took, took massive steps this season, um, but I still have the Yankees as, as the second best team in the American League, um, which... Right, Houston being number one. Yeah, which is, uh, again, no small feat. And, you know, what have the Astros necessarily done this offseason? I know they brought in Jose Abreu. Um, that's big in itself. But, um, you know, I, I think the Yankees just did just a little bit to close that gap, um, which, you know, I, I say a little, but that's still a sizable step. Um, and again, you you bring it to a seven-game playoff series against them, and now suddenly you have this sort of starting pitching depth that could, you know, maybe stifle that offense a little bit. Um, it's it's anybody's game. Um, and again, I don't know if the Yankees have that lineup depth right now um, to you know kind of keep up with some of these higher scoring teams. But you know what? It might be a change of identity with the Yankees where, okay, they're not going to win every game, you know, eight to four, eight to five, 10 to six. Um, you know, so it's, it's a bit of a gamble if they're not going to make any more moves. Um, but, but that being said, this is still a team that's going to flirt with a hundred wins and they should be the favorites to win the American League East. And they should make it to the ALCS because anything short of that is a failure. Oh, absolutely. Anything with the Yankees in general, if they fall short of the World Series, the old George Steinbrenner way is World Series, they're bust at that point in time. Joe, I want to thank you so much for sacrificing your time to come on the Onboard Sports Podcast with myself. Uh, tell everybody how they can follow you on social media. Sure. Uh, if, I mean, if, if you want, um, I'm on Twitter at Joe Pantorno. It's all just one word. Um, you know, come for the come for the sports. Stay for the awkward jokes and SpongeBob references. That's, that's all I got. Awesome stuff, Joe. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And uh, enjoy the rest of your year and a happy new year to you and your family, bud. Was, Thank you again. My, my pleasure. Happy new year. And uh, I look forward to doing this again sometime soon. Absolutely, Joe. Thank you so much. The great Joe Pantorno from AM New York. All right. Thank you again, guys, for listening in. We'll talk to you guys soon. Like I said, enjoy the rest of your new year. We'll talk to you guys soon. Peace out and stay safe out there, wherever you may be. Thank you again.